Hello, I'm Aragorn, also known as Strider, a great ranger of the north. And I'm Tom Bombadil, the unfortunately forgotten character that never quite made it into the movies. And welcome to Player One Bias. So continuing on our episode from last week, we're going to be going over Lord of the Rings again, except this time we'll be talking about the movies. Last time we gave you kind of the background, the history with J.R.R. Tolkien, and everything that went into the making of uh, this legendarium, this mythology, and this time we're going to be uh, stepping into probably the most well-known portion uh, of this mythology and of this story uh, with the movies. Yeah, so these movies were incredibly influential. Uh, perhaps even more so the, uh, than the books in terms of getting Tolkien's work into the pop culture lexicon. So just to give you a little bit of background about these movies, uh, this was a massive undertaking that starts to happen in the late 90s, uh, and it continues all the way up through the early 2000s, and the movies are released in 2001, 2002, 2003, back to back to back. To this day, it's still one of the largest back-to-back film budgets, beaten only by The Hunger Games uh, with their uh, Mockingjay Parts 1 and Part 2, some Pirates of the Caribbean movies that were filmed back-to-back, and The Hobbit trilogy itself topping out at number one. This entire trilogy was filmed concurrently across New Zealand, and it required multiple film crews, and some of these filming locations were so remote that they actually had to access them by helicopter, and the crew would carry these survival kits and rations and everything like that in case there's inclement weather or someone got injured and the helicopters couldn't get to them in time. And these these filming locations and everything like that, it's actually like a tour you can do in New Zealand now. They've kept a lot of you know the places. Uh, they, they have some of the locations like Hobbiton uh, and all that kind of stuff. And it's from what I've heard, it's a pretty cool experience. Uh, maybe not a trip in of itself, but if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, uh, it's, it's it's pretty awesome. Uh, Sean Bean was also famously afraid of flying. So when they were taking these helicopters to the remote locations, he would actually have to wake up early uh, and hike to some of these locations, like two hours away uh, from where they were staying in full costume. Uh, so definitely um, they, they were committed to making these movies very real and using some awesome scenery. Uh, and Sean Bean was having to suffer the consequences for that. Yeah, but he was willing to put in the sweat equity, I guess. So, um, In addition to filming in all these beautiful New Zealand locations, uh, there's also a pretty big participation from the people of New Zealand as well. One in every 160 New Zealanders participated in the production in some way, either as an extra or an artist or something like that. Then even without adjusting for inflation, Lord of the Rings is still the highest grossing trilogy of all time at almost $3 billion. It also tied the record for most Academy Awards with the third movie, Return of the King, earning 11. The fact that, you know, it's still one of the highest grossing movies without adjusting for inflation. I mean, that's crazy, right? $2,003 to now, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, so the fact that yeah, that's almost still, twenty years. Yeah, the fact that it still holds that is is pretty crazy. Uh, and with those Academy Awards, man, I mean, most of these actors kind of were catapulted into cult status uh, with these performances. 
you know, you have you have Aragorn, um, uh, Frodo, Samwise. I mean, the actors that played these guys are now like incredibly, incredibly famous off of just this one trilogy. It was it was kind of unreal. This franchise was actually Orlando Bloom's first big production. Right. And, and he was like a mainstay all throughout the 2000s, you know, as an actor. Right. And now he's, you know, yeah, definitely, definitely cult icon. He's massive. So these movies were incredibly well received. Uh, but of course, with, you know, any adaptation of uh, a love franchise and really anytime you go from a book series to movies, uh, there's always going to be some critics. And so some of the scholars, you know, the Tolkien scholars and some of these more hardcore fans disliked the changes that were made from the book to the movie franchise. And the Tolkien family themselves are somewhat critical of the series. For his part, Christopher Tolkien has said that the movies are inelegant adaptions and they miss the point that uh, his father was trying to get to when he wrote the books. And he calls them an action movie for 15 to 25-year-olds. Yeah, the movies, I, I definitely don't think, stayed true uh, to the vision of J.R.R. Tolkien. And, and that's something that he, he knew would happen. Um, so, you know, as we'll kind of get into with all the movie rights and such, he was reluctant to sell them, and um, he, he was very specific in what he wanted, and he knew he really wasn't going to get it. Um, and, and that can even kind of be seen like we talked about in last episode where he wasn't always a huge fan of some of his biggest fan bases uh, and what they were doing with it. And I think that also kind of leaks into what he was doing with the story like we talked about in last episode. The fact that it was so language driven uh, and so map driven. And, and if you read the books, you know there's like there's poetry you know embedded frequently throughout the story uh, and song and things like that. And, and some of that stuff's hard to capture in you know a visual medium that you're trying to sell you know it's not it's it's not the the language the mythos that's important really at a certain point it's going to be the action and the fantasy elements that you're trying to bring an audience for yeah movies are all about a visual experience um and you know there definitely are uh, some considerations given, like they didn't just run rampant and trample over the story. But anytime you do, and we'll get into how, you know some of the ways they adapted it. But anytime you adapt a book to a movie, you know it's it's hard to capture like prose and that kind of thing. And uh, with the Tolkien family, it was always more about the whole universe that they had created, you know, and and uh, not just about this one little story that occupies a small part of the timeline. But I think, you know, they realized this was not only a good monetary opportunity, but the Tolkien estate thought this was a good way to get more people interested in Lord of the Rings too, I think. So they sort of knew that the movies wouldn't be exactly what they wanted. But if it was popular and they came out and said, hey, it's not exactly true to the books, then it's kind of like uh, it's a reasonable compromise, right? Or maybe both parties get what they want. Yeah, and I, I think with the popularity that the the novels had reached and, and kind of the the cult high fantasy status that it had, it, it was going to be made into a movie eventually. So I think they tried to, you know, control the deviations as much as possible um, and, and then just kind of let it be what it was going to be, you know? Right. So the books were very long. We talked about that. 
the movies are also uh, very long. If you watch the extended editions of the three movies, the whole trilogy will take you something like 14 hours, uh, which is pretty intense for theatrical releases. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but um, I have definitely sat down and watched all of them in a row, and it was it was a crazy day. Uh, I, we, you know, got snacks and drinks and just like camped out and, and, and finished it. It was, it was an epic day for sure. Yeah. That sounds brutal, man. I, uh, I was talking to a coworker just the other day and he set up something similar, like when he was an RA in his college dorm. Um, and I don't know if I could just sit for, I really like these movies. I would be down to watch it like, you know, three days in a row. Like that would be fun. I don't know if I could do 14 hours. That's uh, it's a long time to kind of be inactive, basically. Yeah, by the end of it, uh, eyes were definitely tired. I was, it was, I was ready to uh, not be staring at a screen. That's for sure. Yeah, I feel you. So, uh, when it comes to adapting these kind of iconic books to films, um, there were kind of special considerations and. The writers and directors and, and really some of the actors uh, talked about how they were all fans of the books growing up. Uh, so Peter Jackson is the director for these three films, and uh, he was obviously a big Tolkien fan. And he talks about how, you know, at some point he was like, why hasn't anyone made a movie out of these yet? So uh, really, this is not the first film adaption. And Player Two's got a little more information about how that started. Yeah, so the, the first film adaptation uh, was called J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings in 1978. And it was an animated movie uh, by Ralph Bakshi. It was intended to be a two-part series that would cover the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers. Um, after the first movie was made and kind of based on the results that came with it, uh, Bakshi's investors shied away from the second film. Uh, and, and didn't give them the funding for it. Uh, they, they pulled out of investing. And the remainder of the material ended up being covered later in an animated television series by Rankin Bass. Uh, and this, this first attempt um, at an adaptation of Lord of the Rings did not go very well. It was animated. Um, it definitely didn't stay very true to the story uh, and, and was not well received or liked. And we start to see the difficulties of convincing a studio to invest in a project of this size, uh, which is something that happens with these film adaptions that are most famous as well. Um, so to start things off, Peter Jackson certainly acknowledged the size of the Lord of the Rings mythos. And if you look at some of like the DVD extras and interviews about his process making these movies, uh, he acknowledged that it was really difficult to adapt and there's so much material and you assume a lot of your audience isn't going to know that before they go in to see these movies. So this was something that uh, Jackson and the other writers were very aware of and tried to balance. And I, I think and so. I, I, I think this is the case, you know, with um, pretty much any serious book series adaptation, there's going to be so much material uh, that you just you just can't cover. It, it's not going to happen, and so you, you're going to have to cut corners, and you can't make a movie specifically for the fans, the people who have been reading the books and are super into you know what's what's already there. You have to make the movie for everyone, or else you're you're cutting out audience, you're cutting out money. You know, there's you know you're losing 
you're losing people and that's never the goal of a movie right so the fact that uh, you're having to do this obviously is going to create some disparity between the fans and the people who are just going to see the movie but i think you know ultimately it comes down to mindset i think if you understand that movies are going to be this visual adaptation of something you enjoyed you know and you go into it with that kind of mindset then you can certainly enjoy it even if it isn't strictly true to the books as long as you know certain themes and characters aren't drastically different um at least in my mind because i don't know if i would want to sit through an entirely true to the book lord of the rings movies um i mean maybe if you had like infinite time and iterations you can make it really well done but it could also end up being very dry um because you know watching a movie is a very different experience than reading a book in a book you can kind of take time to absorb some of that information and go back and reference things in a movie you're not going to pause it and rewind 30 minutes to listen to a particular poem to see if it's relevant you know what i mean like that kind of complicates stuff right Uh, yeah i definitely agree with that i think uh you know like like we you know both hit on a little bit it's a different medium it's a different you you can't translate a book to a movie it's not going to work and I think really um, the, the, the best you can expect out of a movie adaptation um, is that if you enjoyed the story, it stays true to the story, it stays true to the characters to some extent, um, and, and follows kind of what you enjoyed the most about the book. You aren't going to be able to contain all of the elements, especially in Lord of the Rings with, you know, the... Uh, all, all of the the stories and the poetry and the songs and all that kind of stuff. But as long as as long as you're staying true to those characters and to the to the action that you enjoyed, you know, when you were reading the book, then I, I think that's what you can really expect from a movie and, and be satisfied with. Yeah, and I, I you know I think this trilogy hit that nail on the head, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think they did a really good job of taking the action and everything that. Um, was exciting about the books and really translating it well, uh, even if it wasn't necessarily always, you know, to the letter, what was described in the books, they made it very cinematic and they, they made it very exciting. Jackson and the other writers kind of came in and said, well, we can't bring in all this detail, but the important things are that we stay true to the themes of the novel. And uh, particularly Tolkien had this focus on what he called applicability instead of allegory. So the idea, like an allegory would be if the ring is like nuclear weapon technology, and so they have to go and destroy nuclear weapons, right? Because nuclear weapons are bad. Tolkien was very critical of that kind of writing. He said, that's, you know, that doesn't last. That's kind of cheap. He said, you rather want to talk about themes that are applicable to anyone's uh, life or anyone's perspective. So some of these themes that the writers identified needed to be included in this movie are being courageous without having courage you know you can be scared and in fact maybe you need to be scared to do courageous things uh hope and hopelessness so you kind of see this in, you know the elves acknowledge that they're fighting the long defeat and the race is dwindling over thousands of years and they're eventually going to have to leave middle earth but they're not just giving up right they're still very active playing an active role in the shaping of middle earth um pluralism and multiculturalism the one ring, right, is the, the singular, and that's the evil thing. And all the races and peoples of Middle-earth have to unite against this big evil. Uh, they also discuss 
how you cannot know the outcome. So all the elves and wizards with all their power cannot foresee how the story will end. They just have to try and hope for the best. And then it also has a very modern view of evil. So it's not just split into this person is good and this person is evil and that's just how they're born and that's how they think. Uh, instead, it's mostly no one deliberately chooses to be evil, uh, but some power will maybe start to corrupt and people either stop caring about the consequences of their actions or they can't recognize that as they've grown more powerful that their actions have started to twist towards the darker side. And this is why you see lots of people, lots of the powerful people in the story reject holding the ring. It's this little hobbit uh, because Gandalf and Galandriel and all these really powerful people are afraid of how they would try to take it and use it for the greater good and not realize that they've kind of crossed that line. I think, you know, these themes and, and them including it, which is definitely something you're able to see um, in the movie is really what made these these movies so impactful and, and be you know kind of heralded as how, how great as they are. They were obviously awesome action movies. You know, there's a bunch of cool stuff and a bunch of cool practical effects and you know whatnot. Um, but I think also the fact that you know this had uh, an emotional impact. You know, there were a ton of scenes that like really you know you were feeling these these main themes that they were trying to pull in. You know, uh, whether that was stuff with Sam and Frodo and Gollum or, you know, the, you, you really felt the, the, the heaviness of the burden of the ring and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, having that, uh, message and having that importance in the movie, uh, is definitely, definitely what made them uh, be as great as they are. Yeah. It distinguished them from just being a swords and sorcery themed hack and slash adventure. Yeah, Absolutely. So, of course, the movie writers also wanted to avoid putting in their own themes or ideas. Um, and so their first draft of, of this screenplay was written in 1997. And they took it to the studio Miramax. Well, they took it to several studios. And, and a lot of studios were not willing to back this big project. They wanted to uh, have an adaption of The Hobbit and then two movies covering the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And most studios were turning them away. Miramax was the first studio who said, okay, we'll, you know, we'll give you some money. We'll finance this project. But they said, no to the trilogy. You got to do it all in one movie. And, you know, eventually Jackson and everyone else said, well, we got to keep looking. That's not really a good solution. So fortunately, New Line Cinema picks up the project and then go into this meeting with the co-CEO, Bob Shea, and they do their whole presentation and the story goes, they're sitting there real nervous, and the CEO says, why would anyone in their right minds make two movies out of this? It should be three. I think, you know, possibly some of the reluctance behind um, these studios backing the project um, and definitely probably some of the weird splits of how they wanted to do the story in different movies uh, could come from, you know, the, the fact that the Tolkien uh, trust was not super behind making the movies. Um, and, and even though these movies were being made long after Tolkien's death, uh, it, 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 you know, he was infamous for not being super conducive to, uh, uh, a good working relationship when it came to his work and his legendarium, uh, and the Tolkien estate also, um, not that great at that either. So 
I'm sure there was a little reluctance coming from that. And, and, and I guess glad it finally worked out with New Line Cinema. Yeah, and I think, you know, another big part of this too is that at the time, fantasy movies were not common and they were sort of a financial risk. Book adaptions and kind of like, you know, nerdy uh, media was not mainstream. This was before superhero movies really took off. This is before things like Harry Potter were made into movies. And so I think that was kind of another reason why no one wanted to finance this really big project. Yeah. Take that risk. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. Lord of the Rings was really the big first fantasy uh, movie to burst onto the scene that did, you know, obviously extremely well. And really, its success is kind of what started to pave the way for uh, things like you mentioned Harry Potter and, and these superhero universes. Uh, because, I, you know, I, I think people kind of ignore the nerd faction a little bit, but it is pretty big. And I think at, at, at heart, everyone has some bit of nerdiness for something, whether, you know, it's you're a nerd about cars or you're a nerd about sports or whatever, right? Everyone has a little bit of that in them, something they're passionate about, something that they, you know, really care about and learn and do a lot. And so I think um, having having Lord of the Rings break out like it did allowed for what, kind of what we see today. Yeah, definitely. So Peter Jackson and uh, there are two other writers on this project, Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens immediately set about rewriting their script, their screenplay to have three movies now. Um, and so the two, two of the writers, Fran and, and Philippa, had more creative control over the actual script and some of the actor dialogue. Um, it, was a, it was a group effort, but they supposedly were the more Tolkien, the book experts, frequently rereading it. So they had a little more influence on that end of the spectrum. And they would leave the directing and like the action scenes up to Peter Jackson. So sometimes the script would be as simple as, and then they have a sword fight and they just trust that he was going to come up with something that was exciting and, and fitting to the you know atmosphere. They had a lot of rewrites during filming. Uh, so this movie was filmed uh, not quite two years. It's about a year and a half of continuous filming for the whole trilogy. Uh, and some of those rewrites came from feedback from the actors. Sometimes it was just, they were rereading the book and thinking about, okay, this is ways we can do it better. Uh, and so almost every day the, the scripts were changing. And one such influence that came from the actors is this concept of Frodo sitting and, and fiddling with the ring and kind of just being absorbed by it and its power. And you see that increases it, you know, as he goes through the movie, the more he carries it. And this came from the actor himself. I think having such a long filming process... Um, and having these people kind of all together as these characters for such a long period of time um, kind of, I, I, I think, made them better actors at what they were doing uh, because they were living and, and, you know, in these characters, in the scenery that these characters were in and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I really think it, uh, you see as the, as the trilogy, you know, kind of goes on, but you, you see that, like, these these actors are really, like, really portraying the characters you know and, and whether that kind of had to do with the fact that uh, you know they were they were wearing tons of like real armor and and you know they were doing all of these actual things that that the characters in the books might have done 
um, I think it lends itself to th- the realness kind of that you see in the movie. Yeah, there was a pretty heavy level of immersion, I think. Uh, so kind of like we talked about earlier, because movies are this different form of media, the exposition scenes were the hardest to write. So there's obviously a lot of information surrounding the Lord of the Rings universe that you have to explain to your audience. And you want to do it in a way that's not boring, and but in a way that they also remember. So this leads to the creation of like this exciting prologue that starts where you, you, you see Sauron and the armies of Middle-earth. You see the fall of Sauron. You see Isildur taking the ring and failing to destroy it, so you immediately understand the ring's power. Uh, it introduces some of the elves that you will meet later in you know, the present as you know in the movie setting, like Elrond. And so you kind of establish that the elves are immortal. And it also establishes that the ring is lost and has been missing for a long time. So as someone who hadn't read the books first, this this was big. Uh, I definitely, this scene was uh, kind of important to me and really helped me understand what was going on. Um, definitely something that like I, I noticed um, and gave me a ton of background. If you hadn't read the books, and really some of this, if you hadn't like been in the lore, you would have no idea what was going on. Um, so the fact that they included this, I think, was was super good and important. Yeah, that simple touch shows, you know, like that Sauron really is the big bad guy because you never see him after the prologue. He's just an eye in the tower, you know. Right, and, and so I don't think you would get the same uh, fear if you hadn't seen that prologue. Right, and you I, you don't have if you just saw what was in the books, really, you would have no context as to what he was, kind of what he did, other than some descriptions from Gandalf. Um, that that come you know later on in the story even not not at the beginning not as exposition. And then uh, so they also add in some scenes that are sort of exciting like pick me ups to help keep the pacing of the movie. So they have like that scene at the beginning where Merry and Pippin steal one of Gandalf's fireworks, and that's just kind of like a fun little distraction almost but that kind of keeps you engaged and maybe you learn a little bit more about the characters another example is when gandalf escapes saruman's tower by eagle that's totally fabricated by the movies but it's a fun little sequence it kind of breaks up the movie i think it adds a little bit of depth to the characters too you know mary and pippin uh are seen as kind of the troublemakers and and the the comic relief and stuff like that so i think it adds a little bit extra to the characters and a little, a little bit of fun, you know? Um, uh, speaking of Gandalf uh, and the Eagles, that is definitely a, a controversial scene uh, for oh, some of the topic. more dedicated fans. Yeah, and it, it sets up that whole conflict. Like, if you've been on the internet for any period of time, like, I'm sure you've seen, you know, the question, why didn't Gandalf just send the Eagles to drop the ring and, you know, in Mount Doom? Um, and that's not the point of the story, but, you know, it's a... So that caused a little bit of controversy. So in addition to adding some scenes, they also had to make some pretty deep cuts to keep the movie focused. And what they call a reasonable length, I mean, 14 hours is still a lot, but you can't go much further than that and without really stretching your audience patience. So some of the more significant things they cut are Old Man Willow and, of course, Tom Bombadil. And uh, Radagast the Brown, you know, there, there was definitely, yeah, some, uh, some large cuts. And, and really, I mean, um, t- 
while while the Tom Bombadil bit was kind of extra, like you don't miss it in the story, I definitely think it provided some. Uh, I, I I think it linked to the Legendarium and it it provided a lot of information that kind of helped you understand the world and what was going on. Uh, the fact that you know this this being that really was incredibly powerful uh, just couldn't even like fight or begin to to enter into this struggle of good versus evil um, and his reasonings behind it uh, I think were like really interesting and I think this is an example where uh, the directors tried to get that point across by using actors they've already introduced so while that's not entirely true to the book to have like Gandalf have these similar conversations or Galadriel right it is um maybe a compromise to still focus on those themes which they decided were more important and still keep a maybe more coherent streamlined plot structure for a movie yeah having i think having that bit in there would would have required a long uh, probably a long couple scenes just to get that point across so the fact that they did that through existing characters i i definitely saved them time but i think also probably was a good way to to work those themes in there while not adding an extra 30 minutes to describe a character who you never see again. Right. And speaking of that, uh, they were kind of left with another problem, very uh, well, a very similar problem with the character Arwen. Uh, so this is the elf who uh, is in love with Aragorn. And really, for being such an important character, she only has a very small number of appearances in the books. And they were kind of left with this, like, do we, you know, waste people's time introducing this character? Or how do we convey that she's a very important character with just based on her book appearances? So they actually write in some extra scenes and they kind of draw some inspiration from the romance of Baron and Luthien, which is a uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what's the right word. It's like a metaphor. It's, it's So it's a human man female elf who fall in love and this as we talked about in our previous episode is tolkien and his wife um, is kind of how he envisions them and so they use that romance that was detailed uh, in places like the lord of the rings appendix and other things to kind of help shape the character of arwen and even though i i don't think she had like a ton of direct mentions in the book she did have an impact through a lot of the things she did whether uh you saw that through aragorn's character um, or like some of the gifts that she uh, had given or her indirect impacts through Frodo or whatever. I think she was an important character. Um, oh, absolutely. And in, in kind of really a driving force behind some of the parts of the story. Um, so the fact that they included her and kind of expanded her role, I think, was was pretty cool. Yeah, I think they felt like they they needed to because... You, they didn't want the audience to miss how influential she was, but they, you know, couldn't just have her say the dialogue from the book and that be it because, you know, maybe that, you know, you might miss that importance. Yeah, it would be, it would definitely feel like you were cutting short uh, and, and leaving out maybe some, not necessarily vital information, but stuff that you would want to know to understand the story. So because they're taking on such this project with such a big scope uh, they do a lot of prep work 
and what they call pre-visualization and storyboarding and that kind of thing to help make sure the project stayed focused when they go to actually film. So one of the first things they did is they storyboarded out the whole movie. So these are, these are basically uh, a sketchbook. This is almost like a slideshow with drawings of all these different scenes they had planned. And they actually sort of make a movie in its own right where they go through and they add voices to this slideshow, the storyboard. And they even put in some, you know, kind of placeholder music and they end up with a rough draft of the movies that you can sit and watch to kind of get a feel. And they end up calling it uh, an animatic. And this is actually uh, something that other movies and other TV shows that I've tried to adapt uh, books or something that has a, a large amount of canon to it has actually like started to uh, take into account based on how successful it was with Lord of the Rings. Um, so I know like uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, they did this and it was it was big towards keeping the story on track and making sure they were hitting the characters how they wanted to uh, and everything like that. So this is definitely, I, I don't know if they were the first to do it. Um, I doubt, you know, this idea had never been thought of before, but they definitely made it famous uh, for the great amount of success that they were able to get out of it and converting such a, you know, massive amount of canon into uh, such a cohesive story. Yeah, and they even go a couple steps further and they would construct miniature sets, you know, towers and everything like that, and they would use this little lipstick camera and they would actually uh, use like models, like almost D and D miniatures and that kind of thing, to set up the scenes. And so they would even practice the camera movements they thought they were going to have in the final movie. Um, and they go so far as to learn about pre-visualization, which is essentially animation, uh, where they make an animated movie or animate certain scenes to kind of help draw up how they want it to feel. And they learn about these techniques from Rick McCollum and in a way, George Lucas, uh, who are, of course, of Star Wars fame. So this is actually how uh, episode one of Star Wars Phantom Menace was sort of planned out, and this was like the hot new thing. And so Peter Jackson and the crew were able to bring in basically a bunch of college interns and recent graduates who wanted to work in animation and have them build these scenes so they could try out the different camera moves and angles and that kind of thing that they wanted to do for this movie. So these ex uh, the extremely long length of filming time and all the remote filming locations that these were shot over uh, makes the cast grow very close together. And uh, the nine members uh, that are a part of the Fellowship of the Ring um, that we see starting, you know, kind of at the beginning of the first movie, all ended up getting a tattoo of the Elvish number nine. Uh, the only actor that didn't was John Reese Davis, who played Gimli, uh, and he actually had his stunt double get it, uh, kind of as a thank you and out of respect to his stunt double, because his stunt double actually did a lot of the acting. Uh, if you aren't seeing his face, it is not John Reese Davis, like, at all. Uh, so that was kind of a, uh, a thank you and tribute to his stunt double. It's pretty neat. So... One of the reasons these movies are so impactful and so famous is uh, all the film techniques they use to make this epic fantasy. This is outside of Star Wars. This is really uh, the first time that there's been this uh, mass market movie that adopts like crazy dragons and, and things like that and does it well. 
So in regards to props and design, they can start, they started on the design work right away uh, because in parallel with the writing of the screenplay, because Tolkien was very descriptive about how things looked. And in addition, the, the books had been out for almost 40 years at this point. So they had 40 years of artwork that they could look at and interpretations to pull from. Yeah, Tolkien's language, how he wrote was incredibly descriptive. Um, and and I think part of this had to do with a little bit of like how we talked in last episode, how he was uh, such like a, a proponent of nature and he, he was always out experiencing it. And, you know, he took like those big trips to Switzerland and all that kind of stuff. And so he really kind of conveyed in all of his work uh, the grandeur and kind of the awesomeness of of the the surrounding and the environment that uh, his characters were in all of the time, uh, which served to help kind of set the tone and the mood um, and, and and really convey what was going on, while also you know kind of indirectly being really easy to translate into a movie because your source material is telling you exactly what everything is kind of you know as an example with the doors to the mines of moria like he describes them in supreme detail and i think you know like the movie definitely basically pulled exactly what was in the books and tossed it in and like there's you know super direct correlation between the two yeah there's not a lot of room for ambiguity in some of the stuff tolkien was very clear on exactly how it needs to be you know so uh, the production crew kind of established early on that there were two very important artists whose artwork they felt they really liked and was a very good reflection of the Tolkien universe. And this is John Howe and Alan Lee. Now, this was in the 90s, uh, so cell phones really weren't a thing yet. Uh, not many people had email. And so they had a hard time contacting Alan Lee, and they actually get him to join the project by mailing him a package of Heavenly Creatures and Forgotten Silver. These are two of Peter Jackson's earlier movies. Uh, and they just sent it to him in a letter saying, hey, this is my you know previous work. We really want you to work on Lord of the Rings with us. Uh, hope to hear from you. And the story goes, uh, they were tracking the package you know, on, with a package tracker. And so they knew as soon as he'd signed for it. And they were expecting to hear from him, you know, maybe in a week or two after he thought about it. And he calls back like not even four hours later. He sat down, watched both movies, and was like, I'm in. When do I start? Uh, so it was cool that they got kind of these iconic design guys in on the project. And they were going to build lots of massive sets. So they actually start the construction of Hobson uh, a year out from filming. And that was... Uh, one, because it would take them a long time to build all the set pieces, but also because they wanted the landscape and all the gardens to really grow in and look like it had just been there forever. And Hobbiton is an actual place that you can visit in New Zealand today. They didn't, like, tear down the set. There's, like, you can go and visit Bag End. It is a real place that they have kept. And, it, you know, it's on the Lord of the Rings tour that I mentioned earlier, and it's just kind of like a little, a little hobbit paradise in New Zealand. It wasn't the only big set they built. Uh, they built the city of Bree. This is one massive set piece in an old Navy base. Uh, and then they would provide a computer-generated background uh, for the wide shots. The Mines of Moria uh, was a massive studio of several different set pieces all set up in this big warehouse. Uh, they actually went so far as to build trees for the forest of Lothlorien. 
Uh, and this required them to wire thousands of leaves onto the trees because either they had relocated trees or they just built trees on their own. Uh, and so the leaves were, were dead and falling off. And so they had to wire on like new leaves for the film. They built almost all of their props in house due to the unique nature. Uh, like I mentioned before, like before this Lord of the Rings really took off, you couldn't just go out and buy like a generic orc costume. Right. Um, and in addition, there was an extra wrinkle of them needing to have multiple copies of, of some of these hero pieces at different scales. So uh, the ring, for example, needed to change sizes throughout the movie. And so they needed copies of the ring that would look good on a hobbit or Sauron or, you know, Gandalf and that kind of thing. So to do a lot of this, uh, they worked very heavily with the Weta Workshop, uh, which is a very famous uh, prop company, and they make all kinds of weapons and armor and all the prosthetics that were used in the film. And they also make uh, lots of miniature versions of the set. And I, I say miniature, but you know some of these are as big as a house, but it's intended to represent a much larger castle. Uh, in addition, they make lots of matte paintings to fill in the background of these sets. Now, another reason Lord of the Rings is is kind of lauded for its its film work is all the practical film effects they use. So I've already mentioned building these large and, and small scale sets. So that meant in the house, uh, in Bag End, uh, they have a set that's Hobbit-sized. Uh, that's actually the large set. So when the actors stand, the Hobbit actors stand in it, they look, you know, small. And then they have a very small set uh, for when the normal humans and Gandalf uh, stand in. So they look like they're too big and you know, having to duck down under the ceiling. And, you know, kind of one of the famous scenes was Gandalf knocking his head uh, as he walks into Bag End on the beam. And that was actually unscripted. Uh, Ian McKellen actually just slammed his head on the beam accidentally, and it ended up making the final cut of the movie. It looked good. I was convinced. They also use, and this is really the first industry application of what they call moving forced perspective shots. So forced perspective is a film technique where you have characters positioned at different distances from your camera and they appear at different sizes, but you have to kind of size everything appropriately. So if you want uh, the person near you is the big one and the person farther away is the small one. But if they're both sitting at a table, uh, the person farther away, their end of the table has to actually also be made smaller to help. Otherwise it'll disrupt the illusion that they're smaller. And they all, characters can't make direct eye contact because, again, that'll ruin the illusion. So you have to have the actors look at a spot that they would be making eye contact if they were actually that size. So they would have to have, like, little markers on different places in the set and say, like, okay, Gandalf, you look here, and Frodo, you look here. And then from the camera's perspective, it'll look like you're just a small person looking into the eyes of the bigger person, but you're really not. So the issue with this technique is it only looks good if it, if it holds from that one angle where everything is lined up precisely. And so if you want to have dynamic camera movements, it would spoil that effect. Unless you do like what the Lord of the Rings crew did, uh, where you just construct these whole set pieces. So if we go back to our table analogy, the small end of the table is actually separate from the big end, but it looks like they're connected. And as you move the camera one way, the table and the actor sitting at that end of the table actually has to do the opposite movement 
via like some electronically controlled mechanism. And that way you keep everything lined up. So there were actually these moving complex set pieces to make the hobbits look small. And I, when I learned this, you know, at probably a little while actually after I had watched the movies, uh, the, the example that I saw and like all the videos and stuff I had watched was, uh, when, uh, two hobbits are sitting, I think Frodo and Sam are sitting in the back of Gandalf's wagon and they had to make, you know, Sam and Frodo look really small compared to Gandalf. And it was actually, they had two separate pieces of a wagon that had to move, you know, at different rates so they could move the camera, get the hobbits to look small in relation to Gandalf while a wagon was moving down a road. It's pretty complex. Um, and in some instances, they were able to use body doubles. So they had hired um, dwarfs or uh, children, basically, to you know, wear a wig and a costume. And so if there are scenes where, say, the hobbit's being carried on a horse by a larger character and there's no direct face, uh, you know, in the shot, then they can use body doubles to kind of simulate that effect of small versus large and so on. There's also some very intense costume work, uh, particularly in terms of prosthetics. So during the course of this movie, they manufactured over 10,000 facial appliances, and this is everything from ears to like scars and um various orc appliances i know most of the actors actually like kept their ears or, or you know something iconic about their character uh and and Liv tyler was kind of famous for arwen she uh excellently left her ears in her car uh in the summer and they melted to her dashboard oh no <laughs> Yeah, they were uh, the durability of these prosthetics was tough because they would f film them in active shots, and so you have to apply them and glue them on every day. Uh, they also manufactured over eighteen hundred body suits um, for various orcs and that and trolls and that kind of thing. Um, the foam latex ovens at the Way to Workshop ran three hundred sixty five days a year for three and a half years, producing all this stuff. Um, so these facial appliances would last the day and then you had to get new ones for the next day of acting. Uh, some of the body suits would last about six days, depending on the mobility, uh, before they needed to be, you know, serviced and patched up or just destroyed. Um, they had a huge makeup and prosthetic team. Uh, the Hobbit feet, of course, are a very important and iconic prosthetic. Uh, and this was a very difficult one because you have to have your actors be able to walk around. And they kind of had decided early on that the hobbits would wear these like cutoff pants. So they have to blend this prosthetic in with the skin around the ankle. And you can't have like these rubbery feet bouncing around. It has to look natural. So it could take an hour to an hour and a half every day to glue on these prosthetic feet and do the skin tone blending. And they would hand knot hair on the hobbit feet to make it look realistic. Yeah, I mean hour and a half to two hours a day just to put on feet and that you know that wasn't including anything else that they had to do for whatever they're about to film so i mean the, the i mean the practical effects were were just nuts and they were obviously extremely dedicated to them yeah they had to stand the whole time they were putting the feet on to keep like the uh angle of their ankles correct so you just you would start your morning off at like 5 30 and just stand for an hour and a half while people worked on your feet but that's not even the craziest thing the actors had to go through. Uh, Gimli, 
the dwarf character, had the most complex prosthetics, and it could take four and a half hours to get all his facial appliances, like the enhanced nose and brows and beard and hair and everything all situated. Uh, they used all metal armor, and it was created pretty much exclusively by two armor smiths from plate steel. They also had to make tons of chainmail for the uh, for the movies, and that's traditionally something that's very hard to do. If you do it cheaply and lightly, it usually looks really bad. And if you just try to use real chainmail, it's really expensive and it's like 40 pounds, and it wears your actors out really quickly. But uh, Richard Taylor ended up creating a method of a way to make realistic lightweight chainmail, and it basically involved buying huge lengths of plastic hose, and you just slice it into real thin sections so you have these little O's of rubber, and then you can cut it, loop them, glue it back together. Even that, it still took months to make all the uh, various chainmail pieces that were required for the movie. In total, they had over 19,000 costumes. They had a team of 40 seamstresses putting it together. Uh, And, of course, um, they get a lot of recognition for their practical effects, but there was also a very important role of computer effects as well. Uh, And so they would use the blue screen to stitch together scenes shot in the different height, uh, size perspectives, as well as some of, like, the wide shots and that kind of thing. Uh, They were also known, they they pioneered the use of a software called Massive, um, which allowed kind of some of those more overall broad shots of battles and stuff um, that you see. Uh, This was the first, like, software that allowed them to animate individual, like, little fights. So when you're seeing some of the, like, bigger, broader shots, um, typically in movies you'd see just, like, two armies or, you know, whatever, just running at each other and colliding. But this allowed them to have kind of like these individual um, little characters fighting amongst each other's or doing specific actions uh, and really made some of these like bigger battle shots seem a lot more realistic. And they also had to use this computer animation to represent some of the more fantastic monsters in the movies. So like the cave trolls and your elephants and um, Smeagol uh, was motion captured but it was an animated character essentially so this was very cutting edge technology that at the time that they were using to you know help bring to life the more fantastic elements of the story and so So we've got oh go ahead yeah so you know during the filming right that these actors for a year and a half were were all together doing all this crazy practical effect stuff and and all that kind of stuff so they're definitely developed some interesting stories and facts that kind of came out of uh you know this extremely long process um so there's a scene when um the aragorn and legolas they lose uh the elves or sorry the hobbits they lose uh mary and pippin they're captured by the orcs uh they're chasing them down uh, and Viggo mortensen kicks an orc helmet uh after he finds tracks and super frustrated uh, he actually broke his his toe and his foot during during the filming uh, and he so he obviously screamed pretty loud because that was super painful, um, and this ended up you know making the cut to the movie. Uh, Elijah Wood had his tooth broken midway through a fight scene, uh, and continued on through the scene, and then afterwards uh, super glued it right there back on so they could keep <laughs> filming. Um, Ian Holm uh, is the actor that played Bilbo. 
Uh, he also played him in the radio adaptation uh, that we mentioned in the last episode, kind of the first adaptation of Tolkien's work. Um, and so he was kind of a shoe-in for the role of Bilbo. Uh, Peter Jackson requested him and, and wanted him to play as Bilbo. Uh, we have Christopher Lee, who played Saruman uh, in the movies. He actually wanted to play Gandalf, uh, but at the casting of the movies, he admitted that he was too old for the action-intensive role. Uh, he was the only cast member to meet J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in real life. Um, and he also played a wizard in a TV series, uh, The New Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, to show anyone watching that he could play a wizard and would be ideal for casting in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Chris really is kind of awesome. Um, he's also in a bunch of heavy metal bands and stuff. Uh, in addition to being a knight and a spy uh, in his younger life. And there's sort of this this famous moment uh, when they're filming his death scene. Uh, he gets stabbed in the back by Wormtongue and topples off the tower. And Peter Jackson was giving him all these directions like, no, you need to, you know, really scream, like, you know, show you're in pain. And Christopher Lee goes, that's not what a person stabbed in the back sounds like. I know. It's just a little <laughs> breath of air. And then they die. Yeah. And everyone was like, well, uh, I guess we're not going to correct you. Yeah. You know, like, holy cow. Yeah, he's definitely... Uh... Definitely a bit of a legend. Uh, all the different awesome stuff that he did. And, and yeah, that specific story is, is crazy. Um, so Flight of the Concords uh, member Brett McKenzie uh, makes a brief cameo as an elf in the Council of the Elrond scene. Um, and a fan named him uh, Figwit, his character Figwit, for Frodo is great. Who is that? Uh, Peter Jackson responded by he actually put him in Return of the King uh, so he showed up in Fellowship of the Ring and Peter Jackson plugged him back in as Return of the King uh, as an elf escort and also gave him a line kind of as a, a service to the to the fans uh, Mackenzie also played an elf in the first Hobbit movie uh, but after you know kind of discussion on forums and stuff it was determined that he was not actually Figwit he was playing a different character um the Urukai, uh, so the orcs, the specific orcs from Isengard, uh, at the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, the voices and all the screaming and stuff that you, you hear uh, that are the orcs was actually New Zealand cricket fans. Uh, so Peter Jackson went to a New Zealand cricket match and set up a bunch of microphones and then put up like the phonetic spelling of all the sounds he wanted them to make and just had them like chant it. And that's what they recorded and used in the movies. And they got a lot of a lot of the New Zealand locals to play orcs in the battle scenes, and they had really a pretty intense job uh, because they would have to reshoot some of these scenes, like where they're break, breaking down the doors to Helm's Deep and that kind of thing, over and over. And they're wearing all these armor and prosthetics, and they're having to yell and fight and get killed and fall off walls. And well, the falling off walls is a stuntman, of course, but. Either way, they had a lot of really enthusiastic uh, New Zealanders who were ready to just run in and yell and, and get cut up. Yeah, and you mentioned the the door of Helm's Deep. Uh, it was actually built too well. Uh, way to workshop, like they they built like a castle door, and it was like legit. <laughs> uh, and they they were using a real battering ram to simulate you know breaking down the door and make the scene look real. Uh, and they actually couldn't break down the door. Uh, so Peter Jackson, you know, he was like, oh, if I if I ever need a, a door for a castle, if I'm ever trying to, you know, prevent a siege or whatever, I'm hiring the yeah. way to workshop guys. Um, so 
while the movies were shot concurrently over that year and a half, uh, they didn't shoot it in like the actual, you know, progression of the film. They didn't follow the story. It was just like random shots placed, you know, like whenever they could get them or, or whatever. So there's the scene where uh, Sam, Frodo, and Gollum are uh, trying to get into Mordor, and they're climbing up this this massive staircase. Uh, and Frodo ends up telling Sam to to go home. Spoiler alert, uh, and is, is telling him to leave. Um, and these shots, as they they alternate between you know like a solo view of Sam and a solo view of Frodo. Uh, were actually shot a year apart. It's pretty wild to think about. Yeah, the, the way you film a movie and put it together afterwards is very different from the way you see the movie. And because they had so much material they needed to film, uh, they would have multiple film crews every day, and sometimes there were four or five of them at once filming various scenes of the trilogy all over different parts of New Zealand. So I'm sure it was this organizational nightmare to try and keep track of. Yeah, and the storyboarding and, and, and all the previous work that they had done was so essential to you know keeping the film on track and, and being as successful as it was. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it would have collapsed under its own weight, I think, without that. Uh, John Reese davis the, the actor who played Gimli, uh, also voiced Treebeard, uh, the Int, and this was kind of cool back on the practical effects. Uh, that is actually just his voice. Uh, the only There was no like editing or anything after that. Uh, he just spoke through a wooden megaphone. Um, and so, you know, such a huge change in voice uh, to get that tree beard voice is pretty cool. So I think, you know, these are obviously movies that we both enjoyed. But maybe the reason they're, you know, so important and worthy of a podcast is the impact they had on modern media. And so this trilogy had a huge impact on the film industry. And I think really is is to credit for this rise in, in fantasy movies, particularly those that are adapted from books. So almost immediately after the success of The Lord of the Rings, you have things like The Chronicles of Narnia, you have Aragon, you have Harry Potter, uh, and a bunch of other you know lesser titles that all come from this idea that you can adapt a book into an exciting movie. Yeah, I, I, I think the translation to movies uh, was really big, but also uh, the, the, the movies themselves contributed to the further success and, and further popularity of the books too because once people you know saw these movies and saw how awesome they were they wanted to go back and read the books and i think this also kind of changed a, a, a little bit uh, of the book industry as well i don't think harry potter would have been as successful as it was um if there hadn't been you know this massively successful spanning multiple different kinds of medias trilogy before it yeah, certainly. It's like a it's like a feedback loop, right? If one of them does well, that drives more interest to the other things in that universe, you know, whether it's books or you know, video games and that kind of thing. Right, and and I mean, kind of just an example of you know the lasting impact that it's really had. Uh, I think the first time I ever knew what Lord of the Rings was about, uh, I I don't remember how old I was, but very very young. Um, I actually. Uh, learned about Lord of the Rings because my aunt uh, was reading the books. Um, so, you know, generational spanning, I was probably four or five, maybe six. Uh, and she was like reading the books and telling me about, you know, the fantasy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and while I was a little too young to read them at that time, I got into it later in life and, and loved it. And so while this film is kind of recognized and remembered for all the cool practical effects that they did, 
um, their inclusion of all these special effects to make the more fantastical elements of the story were very important alongside movies like uh, Phantom Menace and Jurassic Park, which are kind of the same era, uh, that kind of show with these computer effects now, anything can be filmed. No amount of fiction is, is too much from preventing you from making this movie. You can have dragons and dinosaurs and, you know, it's all possible. And uh, this is what really pushes Lord of the Rings into becoming a very common part of modern pop culture. So we, we mentioned how, like, the, you know, this caused an increase in book sales. And, of course, there have been multiple video game adaptions. But on top of that, you just have references that everyone understands you know if, if you say like oh my precious right like everyone immediately understands that's Gollum from lord of the rings uh and if you make a joke about like you know like one does not simply walk into mordor right like there's all this stuff that even 20 years ago is just everyone is universally aware of yeah you know i um i definitely thought that you know lord of the rings was pretty pretty widely uh understood um and recognized but I was at a uh, hockey game recently, and they played a clip from a movie. I honestly I have no idea what it was. Definitely like a, a, a '90s like action movie. Uh, looked like almost an Indiana Jones spinoff or something, something weird and random. And then uh, <clears throat> one of my friends there was like, "Oh, uh, is that Lord of the Rings?" And I was devastated. Oh, I was devastated. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can uh, continue to be friends with that person. It was yeah. it was horrible. Were they the ones who got you the hockey tickets? They were not. Okay, no. yeah, then cut them, dude. Yep. Cut them loose. <laughs> so, and then another impact is, it, like, this trilogy kind of put New Zealand on the map for a lot of people. Uh, you've mentioned a couple times the tours you can do. Um, it just in general, the tourism to New Zealand increased because of all, like, the beautiful scenery you saw in the films. Yeah, I, I mean, New Zealand's a small island nation. And it's right next to Australia, so a lot of people go to Australia instead of New Zealand. Um, but really, it's, I mean, I haven't been. Uh, one of my best friends has been. Uh, someone who's actually a, a guest on this podcast earlier uh, on our League of Legends episode, Taylor Brown. Um, and just said it is, I mean, breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, some of just, you know, the uh, the bays, the mountains... The, the sounds, all this kind of stuff is just, like, unreal. And, and these awesome cinematic shots that you see in Lord of the Rings so often um, really, really definitely led to, like you said, uh, a massive increase in tourism. So, you know, we couldn't talk about just the Lord of the Rings trilogy and ignore the Hobbit trilogy. Uh, that's much more recent uh, and, you know, was maybe less well-received. So we want to talk about that as well, and maybe in the context uh, as it compares to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So just to give you some background about the Hobbit films. So like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, Jackson's original plan was to film the Hobbit and fit all the Lord of the Rings into two movies. Uh, they couldn't do it at the time because of some licensing issues. Uh, the company that owned the Hobbit movie rights uh, was not the same company who owned the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and they like could never agree um eventually though uh like basically after the success of the lord of the rings there were some deals struck and the hobbit movies were going to be produced uh but in the interim peter jackson ends up filing a lawsuit against new line cinema uh, and he basically requested an audit because he suspected that new line had withheld a bunch of income from him uh based on the performance and success in the movies 
the co-founder of New Line was really annoyed and at Jackson, and he just said, you're never going to direct for New Line again. A couple years later, though, they just had a bunch of commercial flops, and he kind of tried to buddy back up to Jackson a little bit. And in 2007, it was announced that Jackson would be the executive producer of The Hobbit. Guillermo del Toro was hired to direct the film a year later, uh, but the development of these films were stalled by a lawsuit from the Tolkien estate this time, uh, suing for basically the same reason, saying that New Line was withholding profits from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, so it's kind of a common theme here. New Line was maybe sitting on some money uh, that they owed all the various parties involved. Um, Del Toro had said that he had this vision of The Hobbit as being having a different feel from the Lord of the Rings universe created by Jackson, and he pictured it as being more of this fairy tale and kind of golden story and he talked about how he would have to sort of do this transition from the way he imagined the hobbit in this fairy tale perspective and then eventually shift into the lord of the rings style as the hobbit movies concluded and i think that kind of aligns itself with how tolkien wrote the books right because the hobbit was more of a children's story it was definitely directed for his children and for other children uh, and Lord of the Rings ended up being a little bit more heavy uh, in nature of the themes it was presenting uh, and things like that. So I think that that, that would have been a cool uh, cool way to kind of show how Tolkien uh, envisioned his books and how he wrote them. Yeah, The Hobbit has a very different feel. But I think most critically, uh, the people who were financing this movie wanted the success of The Lord of the Rings. So I don't know if they really wanted like a fairy tale Hobbit adaptation. I think they wanted Lord of the Rings part two. And we'll kind of get into maybe where, you know, the Hobbit trilogy went wrong. Uh, but it kind of starts with Del Toro leaving the project in 2010, basically because the making of this movie had been delayed for years. And he just said, okay, I can't do it. I have to go focus on something that's actually going to get made. So ultimately Jackson ends up being brought in, not just as the producer, but also as the director uh, and he was kind of on a time crunch because these movies had been, you know, delayed for so long. So the Hobbit films were not as critically well received as the Lord of the Rings. And some of the things that get criticized are the very heavy use of CGI. There's like almost no practical effects. It's all green, various iterations of green screen, even as far as, you know, the backdrops and the sets and the costumes in some cases. Um, they dragged it out across three movies and really there's no uh support for that beyond it just would make them more money um they had to add in lots of characters and storylines to kind of fill three movies which you know anytime you're tampering with the original stories is going to cause problems and a very significant amount of the screen time was devoted to characters like returning characters like legolas uh, who don't really have a part in the Hobbit book. Like, at all. Um, but they're basically... Yeah, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he was essentially there just for fan recognition, kind of like you have, um, like, R2-D2 keeps showing up in all the Star Wars movies. Not because it makes sense, but because it, like, helps sell toys. You know, people will look at it and go, like, oh, it's R2-D2, I know that character. So, like, all these things kind of compiled into, you know, people grumbling about the Hobbit and them just being kind of, like... A decent summer movie, you know. Oh, they came out, you know, around Christmas time, I think. But yeah, I, I, 
I think the fact that they used a lot of CGI and straight away from the massive amounts of practical effects that they were using uh, made the movies feel less real, uh, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Because it is a high fantasy. You aren't expecting a ton of realness out of that. But I think if they had stuck with the practical effects, which in, in the movie industry in general have, got, have pretty much all gone away due to cost and effectiveness, but if they had kept true to that, that it, how it was in The Lord of the Rings, I think that would have made these movies uh, add a little bit of nostalgia, I guess, for me personally, but I think it would have made them awesome. So this is, this is an interesting topic, and I kind of wanted to pick your brain on it uh, because, like you mentioned, the industry as a whole is going to almost entirely CGI for lots of reasons. But I kind of want to like break down the concept that, you know, maybe CGI is bad because uh, I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. Like, I think if you say, um, well, so, so say the Hobbit movies ended up exactly the same as they are now, uh, but it was just made with practical effects. It was still written the same way. It still looked about the same level of quality and everything like that, but it was practical effects. Like, would that change your opinion of the movie, or would you just be more interested in, like, how it was made? Yeah, I, I definitely see what you're getting at there. Um, I, I guess for me, like, some of uh, some really cool parts and things that were, like, really impactful were, like, scenes at Isengard with, like, the birth of the orcs, and you have this dude in a disgusting orc full body costume like clawing his way out of this mucky gloopy slimy sack like that was really cool you know that that was something that like i could tell was real and looked awesome and like just made the orc seem so much more real and like evil and nasty and i i think it added a little bit to the story and certain components uh, but then if you were to do, like, Smog the dragon, if you were to try to do that practically, I think that would have detracted from the movie. I, I think having okay. him be CGI uh, kind of allows for you to have more of uh, a, a, a lot of different emotions or feelings or uh, visual things that should be associated with that dragon, whether that was, you know, the fact that it was so big or or you get all these extra little bits by having it be CGI. So I think there's a time and place for both aspects, practical and CGI. And I think you kind of have to uh, weigh, you know, time, effort, cost with what it's actually going to bring to the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good take. Because um, there definitely were some what I would consider bad uses of CGI and that like it looked bad. Like I think Rivendell is where it really stood out to me because it's the same location that was in the Lord of the Rings movies as a physical set. Right. With CGI background versus like being entirely CGI when you visit it in The Hobbit. And it does look worse. Um, and so, yeah, maybe there's a balance of if you build a physical set piece that the characters are positioned around and have CGI backgrounds versus um, CGI costumes next to a CGI set piece next to, you know, on top of a CGI background, maybe. Yeah. That, you know. I mean, despite how, you know, good some of the animation and stuff has gotten, I, there's still, you can still tell a difference. And, and sometimes I think it does kind of detract a little bit just because you know it's not real. Um, and it just kind of, so like uh, Azog the Defiler, Right in the Hobbit movies, uh, most of his appearances and stuff were CGI. Um, this is the pale orc, right? Yeah, 
most of his stuff. See, I I thought he looked really good. I yes, but he didn't look as good as that like Urukai captain who like fought Boromir. You know that was like legit. I mean, I guess it depends. So this is this is like where you talked about with the dragon, how they were able to make him appear much more larger than life and go through all these crazy movements because right, he was right. CGI. And I like so as I the Defiler was much much larger than this Urukai and just like such an intimidating presence. Um, and I, I feel like maybe that would be very hard to capture with no matter how good your rubber suit was. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and you know, I think uh, so. There's a couple. You know, it's maybe hard to quantify the intangible stuff. Um, so if you get to interact with a physical actor. Or if you're portraying the character and you're in a costume and you're in like the muck and everything, like does that make your performance better than if you're wearing a green morph suit in a green room? You know, I think that stuff's a lot harder to define, and there's certainly some you know credence to that argument as well. Yeah. Um, so maybe that can make a difference. I, I I think now though actors like you do that in so many movies that that's well, and voice acting has been that way forever, right? Right. right. So I think that's starting to uh, the. They're overcoming that. Their acting is just as good, without you know being able to look at someone, right? Like I, I mean, how many and how many of the superhero movies are you looking at like a ping pong ball above someone's head and that's what you're talking sure. to, or you know whatever? So I, I think that you know the quality of actors that we're seeing in these movies and and the work they're producing, I I'm not noticing a difference, you know. Now like like that's kind of an unquantifiable, like you said, um, sure. But I I, I definitely feel that some things could be used a little bit more as practical effects um, and, and it might increase a little bit of uh, the viewer experience and understanding that what you're watching is actually real um, but that's definitely a fine line and, and, and hard to really define between you know oh that scene would have been better if it wasn't CGI so there's uh, kind of two more topics I see frequently uh, you know, mentioned in regards to the Hobbit a lot, but CGI in general that I kind of wanted to run by you too. Um, so one of them is is that you see people like slamming Peter Jackson, saying like, "Oh, this, you know, he wasn't as passionate about this," and you know, CGI is passionless, and it shows in the movie. Um, and while it's true that maybe Jackson wasn't, this wasn't his life's work, like you know, maybe Lord of the Rings was. I don't. I think a lot of your CGI artists would kind of take issue with the fact that if you said you know their work was lifeless and didn't have any passion i'm just curious how you felt yeah uh, no i i, what your I mean opinion on that was it's definitely an art form and it is art right i mean what they're having to do if you watch any of like the behind the scenes animation on uh i brought up avatar the airbender earlier in the episode like if you watch some of that stuff and like everything that they do i mean that dude it's it's art it's cool and the work they put in behind it too um, you know, I, I don't know specifically for Lord of the Rings, but for like a lot of stuff, you know, they have to do like a lot of research into the fighting and everything that's going on. So they know like what kind of movements people are going to make and then they have to emulate that or they'll record it with actual people first and then go in and, and animate it or whatever. So I, I definitely think it's a, it's an art and even though, uh, it may not always be real and even though it may kind of be a little different or whatever it's definitely something that requires skill um and, and is is art 
Yeah, and I like I think it's it is sad that um, you know these weaponsmiths and these prop designers and like um, set builders, all these you know really cool artistic talents have kind of are kind of losing ground and and have less and less relevance. Um, I think it's it is unfair to say that CGI is like this passionless computer generated whatever, right? Because those are just a, it's a different form of art, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, I I, I do agree with. You know, it is kind of sad. Like Star Wars, we mentioned earlier, right? They did a lot of practical effects. Like their screen scroll was literally someone like moving, you know, a piece of paper and a camera so they could get that, you know, their famous opening credit scene. And, and you know, the, you, you talked about the artists who would paint backdrops that would be used um, as, you know, like scenery for shots or whatever. I think, you know, that going away is kind of sad, but... Um, I think it's just transformed. There's new artists doing new things with CGI. And so the the last uh, you know CGI topic I want to ask you about, um, and I think maybe it's often overlooked, is the more conservation aspect of CGI. Um, so for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they made tons of sets, right? And most of those were destroyed shortly after filming, and it's you know foam and wood and whatever that basically you know they have to dispose of. Um, and in addition, like a lot of these battle scenes and stuff, there were some criticisms because they would have to close down like um, national parks in New Zealand uh, for them to film. And there was like one instance where, uh, you know, they actually had to do some restoration on one of these natural areas just because it had been trampled down so badly by all these, you know, actors and extras and everyone going in and out. And uh, so like, you know, in that aspect, CGI is maybe the more friendly and less wasteful uh, way of doing some of these things. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's definitely, you know, a few special cases like you, you mentioned with the, the restoration at a national park or whatever. But I think as a whole, there's not too many movies that have done stuff on that big of a scale. Um, and it's not like they're just brutally destroying nature wantonly, right? Um, right. So there's a lot of under other industries that are w- much worse at that. Yeah. Right? I, I think conservation is important and like it, it's definitely should be a consideration if you can. So, you know, maybe at some of those larger battle scenes or whatever that possibly should have been accounted for. Although at the time, I don't think it was as big of a deal as it is now. Uh, so I think that is may- maybe a lesser selling point for CGI or maybe a lesser consideration. Um, because I, you know, you think maybe, oh, you're filming, uh, an underwater scene, you could be damaging, you know, ocean environment or, or, you know, habitat or whatever. But I, I don't think there's too many movies that have that large or really any of a negative impact outside of like what normal people might do for recreation with like scuba diving sure. or hiking or, you know, so I don't think that's. Well, and it could be beyond just conservation, but just kind of like obstruction of the public in some ways. So if, I don't know, say someone is filming uh, a police procedural, right? And so they want to like close down a street of New York to film a scene for a day. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Um, then, yeah, maybe there's an argument for like, why don't you just do that in a studio? And then that way everyone else can like go about their life. Yeah, you know, I, without and, having to I mean, that happens pretty this. frequently. Like New York's super popular for shooting and for scenery and stuff. And, I, like, I remember when we were there, we saw, like, multiple signs about streets being shut down yeah. or whatever. 
Um, and it wasn't like that big a deal, but you, you, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's kind of this advantage to, you don't have to occupy the physical set. Right. If that's an issue. And I, I think that's probably, you know, kind of back to that. Oh, does having this be real? Does having this be practical? Does this change uh, what we're conveying with this scene or with this shot or, or you know, whatever? I, I think it's it's more of a fine line of, of what they're trying to get across with that or, or what they're doing with that individual shot or scene. Yeah, I definitely don't think there's like a, you know, only do one or the other, you know? No, yeah. Yeah. But I guess, in so in conclusion, you know, I think, um, so the Hobbit movies kind of were kind of flat. Uh, and I think at least that, you know, was, was kind of earned. Um, but I think a lot of people focus on the fact that it was um, so CGI intensive compared to the Lord of the Rings as being the reason it was bad. And I think that's just more of like an extra thing tacked on, tacked on top. Like, I think a lot of the, you know, the real issues with the movie were um, stretching out into three movies and tacking on all these like, not as well written storylines to kind of fill the gap and making it on like a short timeline because of delays and this kind of thing. And then the CGI is just the easiest thing for people to notice and, and nitpick. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that was my main problems with the movies. Um, they were fun. They were exciting. Like there was good action. Like I think kind of if I took a more unbiased perspective of being a fan of Lord of the Rings, I would say they were fun movies uh, that like you could definitely enjoy. Um, yeah, they're fine on their own. Yeah, you know, like just if you you could sit down and watch it, and not be you know upset. Right, but I I definitely think some of the added storylines and, and a lot of the stuff that they threw in to extend it to three movies. I, as a fan of Lord of the Rings, uh, I I thought was kind of garbage. Uh, them having Legolas in there when he you know wasn't even a part of the Hobbit at all. And then, like, they made a central, central part of the story across all three movies was, like, this weird love triangle between Legolas, Toriel, another elf, and and one of the dwarves uh, that was one of Bilbo's companions. Uh, I can't remember which twin it was. Uh, Keely, right? Yeah, Keely or, Feely or Keely, I don't remember. Um, but like the fact that that it's not important. Well, yeah, the the <laughs> fact that that was like a major theme across all three movies that did not exist at all in any form or fashion in the book kind of was extremely gratuitous, and I thought absolutely unnecessary. Yeah, it just wasn't the same quality or the the same feel as like you know the Tolkien aspects, and so I think that you know had a lot of conflict. Yeah, and I think the main parts of the story, uh, you know, the conflict with Smaug um, kind of at the end, um, a little bit of, I, I think they added some things that were okay. Uh, you know, they kind of did some stuff with the Eagles that I think was all right. Um, overall, like I said. Yeah, not every edition was bad. Yeah. I think overall, good, enjoyable movies. Maybe not very true to the book, which you know, took it even farther than the Lord of the Rings were not true to the books. Um, maybe not my favorite book adaptation, but I definitely enjoyed going and watching them with friends. Yeah, I'd agree. So I think that pretty much wraps up our episode and maybe our little mini series here on Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. 
And uh, of course, we'd like to hear your feedback. So let us know what you thought about this episode. Uh, what did, you, did we were we, were we too harsh on the Hobbit? Uh, were we not harsh enough? And of course, we're also looking for you know any suggestions on topics and things you want to see us cover. So you can find us on a bunch of different social medias. Uh, Ben's got you covered there. Yeah, reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook at Player One Bias. Um, you know, let us know if you enjoyed Lord of the Rings, if there were any cool facts that we missed, or if you enjoyed The Hobbit and think we were totally wrong. Please let us know what you think. Rate and review us on iTunes. And thanks for listening to our two-parter on Lord of the Rings. Yep, thanks, guys.